What we'll do to get us going tonight, I see there's a few people that are here tonight that weren't here last week, so we're not going to review everything we talked about, but I'm wondering if maybe just two or three of you could share something you learned last week or something you were introduced to that you hadn't realized before about about Israel. So we, we discussed primarily the state as it currently is. And we did a really quick overview of its history, but just two or three things just to kind of stimulate our thinking and take us back to what we talked about. What were some things that we, we brought up last week that maybe you hadn't thought of before? Josh? It's very mountainous. It's very mountainous. Okay, actually someone else said that to me before. Uh, I think on Sunday we were chatting in the hallway and they said they never realized there was a band of mountains down the center of Israel. Okay, so that's good. Yeah. And we're talking like an hour and a half's probably tops, top end. And it's because you're traveling through checkpoints and you're going uphill and whatnot. If you just sort of had a f- open road, I would say, I'm just thinking it would probably be closer to 40 to 45 minutes from one side of the country to the other. Um, pardon me? Yep, okay, about 8.3 million people. What percentage of that 8.3 are Jewish? About 75%. Okay, Any, anything else? That sort of, okay, mostly secular. A lot of people think most Jews are religious. Benjamin Netanyahu is a secular Jew, the prime minister of the country. He's not a practicing, reformed, conservative, orthodox, or ultra-orthodox Jew. Pardon me? He's had a number of problems over the years. <laughs> Rob? Uh, yeah, approximately, I think it's around 1% would be Christian, and those would mostly be composed of uh, Messianic Jews, which would be Jews that would affirm Jesus as the Messiah, or Christian Arabs. But when I say Christian Arabs, don't necessarily you don't necessarily think born again people, but people that have some connection with um, orthodoxy or some other uh, Catholic faith, for instance. Yep. More than fifty percent of the officers in the army are women. Okay. Yep. More than more than 50, about fifty-one percent of the officers in the IDF, which is the Israeli Defense Forces, are female. So they have a high high percentage of uh, they have a higher percentage of infantry that are male, but uh, a pretty large probably probably one of the largest if not the largest uh, representations of females in any modern army, and they d- they did not exclude women from you know being green berets special forces like the whole nine yards. Okay, I remember when Susie and I were traveling from the south to the north uh, through the West Bank large parts of which you're just kind of out in the middle of nowheresville. We saw these two female soldiers just sort of trucking it down the road, like on foot, walking down the road. There was like nobody around. They had their rifles and everything, but to me they looked like they were about 15 years old, but they probably were 18. But I thought, man, I don't know if I'd want my, I don't know if I'd want my daughter out there in the middle of nowheresville, but that's the way it was. So, okay, good. So what we're going to do tonight is I just wanted to finish up a few quick points that I did not get a chance to get to last week to do with modern Israel. Then I'm going to take us back about 5,000 years. We're going to start from about 5,000 years out 
in and around 3000 BC. And I want to describe to you as best as I can what Mesopotamia was like. Because we know that Abraham, according to Genesis 11, came from Ur of the Chaldeans, which is part of what's called the Fertile Crescent or Mesopotamia. So being that, that, being that that's where the ancestors of the Jews came from, and being that that was one of the superpowers of the world at various times in history, I thought we could spend some time talking about Mesopotamia. We'll touch on Egypt time and again, but most of you probably know a lot more about Egypt than Mesopotamia because the study of Egypt is just kind of just one of those famous places everybody studies. I mean, last night I was watching a documentary on King Tut, and Egyptology is a study of... Um, modern archaeology and you know we probably all you know did the whole king tut project complete with the bristol board in uh, elementary school um, so we we know a little bit more about uh, egypt which is to the south of canaan but we probably don't know as much about mesopotamia and the fertile crescent which is where the jewish people came from their ancestors at least so that's what we're going to do this evening so just a few things um these uh you know these are just some points they're not super significant but these are just some points I, I introduce you to things like animal life and how they're touched down on a few of the different animals that are there and the ones that are being re reintroduced also when it comes to the the shape and look of the land largely by the time that the jews started to move back on mass into israel which was in and around 1880 m most of the land had sort of gone wild more or less so a lot of the lands that would have been farmed by the ancient Jews had turned into swamps. And a lot of the trees had been cut down. The forests had been cut down but never replaced. A lot of the animal life had been, become extinct or been chased out or hunted, hunted out. And being that a large part of Israel is desert, it's, especially in the south, it's very important for Israel to have forested lands for purposes of... Um, erosion and lumber and you know just general appearance in the northern northern half of the country so what the jews uh have done a really good job of is uh, basically taming the land and bringing it back to maximize its agricultural value and as i mentioned to you last week if you sort of picture israel from the north to the south along the western side is the plains of sharon or the coastal plains, and that's where the majority of farming takes place. Then straight down the center, you have the, the mountain ranges. So you have everything from you know Mount Hermon, Mount Jerusalem, all the way down this mountain range. And then to, to the east is the Rift Valley, or the Jordan Valley, where the Jordan River runs through down to the Dead Sea, and down into, from there down into um, uh, the Gulf. So most of this takes place on the western side, but Israelis put a huge value even today on planting trees. Trees are very important to them. So literally hundreds of millions of trees have been deliberately planted since the country was formed in 1948. And this is in an effort to recreate a lot of the long lost forests. Now some of the tree species that are there, you know, we're familiar with these kinds of names and others are different, but they have cypress trees, Lots of oak trees, olive trees, acacia trees, pine trees, almond trees, etc. And in fact, under the category of holidays, the, um, the first major holiday in the Jewish calendar every year is called the New Year of Trees. It's a secular holiday. It's not a 
Jewish holiday. But uh, everybody takes time to go and, and plant trees. So this has kind of become almost like a national pastime or hobby, which is commemorated early in the, in the year uh, as part of their holiday system. And so out of that, then I want to discuss some of the other holidays that the Jews celebrate. And you're probably familiar with most of these. We're not going to go into great detail on all of them. But I've just selected a few to touch touch upon. So these are modern holidays, many of which have uh, ancient significance. So you may have heard of uh, Purim. And what event does Purim commemorate? Anybody know? Jill? Okay, so what was going on with Esther? Okay, so... She didn't really save them, but she was you know, instrumental in the process. If you read the book of Esther, uh, King Xerxes, actually a Persian king from Assyrian stock, had uh, uh, basically was ruling uh, Israel while they were in captivity. And Esther and Mordecai, and there's a whole story behind that, the Jews were miraculously delivered from Haman, who was trying to kill them. So every year since then, which is obviously several millennia, the Jews celebrate Purim, and much like our Easter that varies depending on the year in terms of its date, a lot of the Jewish uh, holidays vary year by year depending on the date, their, their Jewish calendar. So this would take place in either February or March, depending on the year. And then the next major holiday is Passover. What does Passover commemorate? Jack? Okay, where were they coming out of? Okay, that was out of Egypt, right? So this one is also celebrated in uh, March or April. It varies year by year. And of course, we sort of pick up on this theme in the celebration of the Lord's Supper. And then uh, uh, this is also known as... Uh, Peshach, so that would be spelt like this. Okay, so there's a couple different names for it. The next uh, major holiday is more modern, and that's Holocaust. Memorial Day. And what does that commemorate? It's a memorial. It's not so much of a... Okay, so... Roughly 6 million Jews, 3 to 5 million other people, about 5 million other people were killed during the Holocaust. In Old Testament studies, we actually use the word Holocaust as a theological word to refer to the sacrificial system because it means to burn with fire. So especially if you're reading like pre-World War II commentaries, it's talking about the word Holocaust in a positive way and you're thinking, whoa, what's going on here? It's not talking about the World War II Holocaust. It's talking about the sacrificial system where animals were burnt on the altar. That was called a Holocaust. But it, like, it had more of a positive meaning, so it was part of God's commandments. But that word became obviously politicized because of the burning of the Jews in, in, uh, through the gas, after the gas chambers in World War II. So that would be another major event. Then they have... Uh, Various other days, um, Memorial Day, Independence Day, the day they got their independence, uh, Jerusalem Day, and then I'll take you to uh, Pentecost, which many Christians celebrate 
today as well, which is we, we celebrate it for different reasons. This is also known as uh, Shavuot. Now, when we celebrate Pentecost, what are we celebrating? Okay, the birth of our church, which took place when? Yeah. Correct. So 50 days after Easter, we celebrate Pentecost. Now, we call it Pentecost, but they were actually already celebrating Pentecost before we took it and celebrated it for a different reason. Why were the Jews celebrating Pentecost? Pentecost was the day that they believed God had given them the Torah on Mount Sinai. So that's the historical background of the of Shavuot or the Pentecost. So the Jews were together, they're in one place, they're celebrating Pentecost because they're Jews, the giving of the Torah at Sinai. The Holy Spirit shows up and now Christians celebrate that same day as a commemoration of the birthday of the church, 50 days after uh, Easter. And then we have Rosh Hashanah. This is two words. And uh, Rosh Hashanah is a celebration of the Jewish uh, New Year, which is generally celebrated in September. But again, it varies day by day based upon the Jewish calendar. Or sorry, year by year based upon the Jewish calendar. Now, whatever day Rosh Hashanah falls on dictates when the next day is going to be celebrated, and that's Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is a day of atone is considered the day of atonement for sin, and they celebrate this ten days after Rosh Hashanah. So they basically mourn their sins and celebrate God's atonement. Now, much like Christmas in our culture is highly secularized, you can imagine that in Israel there would be a much different value placed on this event by an ultra-Orthodox Jew as opposed to an atheist Jew. The atheist Jew, you know, it's a day off, it's a day to hang out with family and friends, but it's not really uh, maintained for its original purposes, much like a lot of people in our country celebrate Christmas, but there's no Christ in their Christmas, so to speak. And then there is Sukkot. Sukkot is also another significant holiday. And Sukkot is... The biblical feasts of booths. So the fe- it's also known as the feast of booths where you visit Jerusalem. What's the historical backdrop to Sukkot? Once a year, the Jews were supposed to do what? Yeah, so they, they leave their house. And ideally, if they can, go to Jerusalem, no matter where you're living in the country. But if not, you basically go out and you live in a tent or a little shack or a little hut. And what was the purpose of that? To commemorate what? The 40 years of wandering in the Sinai Desert. So everybody you know, get up, gets out their Coleman camping tent and their little stove, and uh, they celebrate the Feast of Booths. I'd imagine that this is like a highlight for the kids and the adults kind of celebrate it begrudgingly because they prefer their king-size beds. Now, uh, the next event is Simchat Torah. 
and I'm only giving you like half of them. So Simchat Torah is a celebration of rejoicing with the Torah that follows Sukkot. So basically it just comes, I'm not sure how many days, might maybe the next day, but it comes after that as sort of a celebration of the Torah in particular. And then perhaps next to Passover, um, the, the next most famous one that most people would know is Hanukkah. There's a couple ways of spelling this. You can also spell it with a C-H, Chanukah. And what does Hanukkah celebrate? It's usually right around um, Christmas. It can fall in November or December. Okay, it's Festival of Lights, but it's actually connected to the celebration of the dedication of the second temple in the second century BC. So that would be the temple that was later destroyed by uh, the Romans in 70 AD. So that celebrates the commemoration of the second temple. Okay. So we have Tabernacle, Solomon's Temple, Herod's Temple, and then no more. Those are the three temple-like structures that the Jews uh, valued and used for worship. So you can look this stuff up online. There's, there's many, many more days. Uh, some of them would be like stat holidays. Some of them would just maybe be days you commemorate, but you'd still go to work. But they, they like their vacation time. So they have a lot of holidays to enjoy. All right. Well, what we're going to do now is we're going to move away from a discussion about modern-day Israel. We're going to go back, as I mentioned, about 5,000 years. And we're going to go to a place of the world known as Mesopotamia. Now, Mesopotamia, by some, I'll bring this up as a slide, is considered sort of the, the cradle of civilization. And the reason why it's considered the cradle of civilization is because right here we have what? What does that say? The Tigris and Euphrates. And according to the Bible, somewhere around this area of the world is where the Garden of Eden was. Now, again, we have to be a little careful about this because lots of stuff got moved around in the flood. So whether the Tigris and the Euphrates, by the will of God, sort of landed more or less in the same place they originally were compared to before, we don't know. Or it might be that later in the Torah, as God was trying to describe to his people where the Garden of Eden was, that he described it as being in this region which they would have been familiar with, even though the Tigris and Euphrates may not have existed at the time the Garden of Eden existed. So best as we can tell, somewhere in this area is where the Garden of Eden was. So we often call this the cradle of civilization. But beyond our belief in the Garden of Eden, there's also other good reasons why this is considered the cradle of civilization, because this area is where um, much of modern culture finds its historical roots. So things like writing developed in this area. Uh, the first empire ever to exist grew up in this area. This area was... Uh, an area within which things like bronze were discovered about 800 years before the Europeans started using bronze. So it was, it was civilized, it was advanced compared to many other areas of our world. So just to orient us, here we have is what we now call Israel, starting up here and sort of coming down to this area here and then back up. This area here is 
is modern-day Egypt. We have the Jordan in this area, Syria and Damascus up here, and Lebanon up in this area. And then Saudi Arabia is down here. Now, it's called the Fertile Crescent. Just look at that map for a moment and think to yourself, why would that be called the Fertile Crescent? Okay, and, and why would that be? Looking at the geography. What what's what do we see in here that we don't see up here and down here? Okay, so mountains are a little more difficult. You can see the mountain ranges all up in this area, so that's that's a little more difficult to you know, especially for ancient people to to populate. You'll notice too if you look at these rivers, look at the amount of fresh water they had access to. Look at all this, all these river systems. Down here you have salt water, salt water, salt water. This is kind of brackish water. But here you have lots of fresh water. Down here you have desert. Well, it's kind of hard to grow stuff in the desert, right? So you have a little bit flatter area. You have fresh water. And um, you have, you know, more or less flat plains. I mean, there would be some mountains in this area as well, but compared to the north, no. Now, what might interest you is this is a bit more of a modern map. I just put this, this is someone else's map, but I just put ancient coastline. This would be more or less the boundaries of the Persian Gulf today, but notice there's no settlements in here because even at the time of Abraham, the coastline would have come up like this, if you follow my little red dot. So all this area, which is now land, has filled in with sediment. So the ancient coastline differs from the modern coastline. Couple places, Ur, where did Abraham come from according to Genesis 11? Ur of the Chaldeans, right? So Chaldeans lived in this area. We have some well-recognized cities, Nineveh. Who didn't want to go to Nineveh? Jonah. Uh, we have, what's this? Babylon, what do we know about Babylon? Bad empire. So the, the southern kingdom was exiled to Babylon. Assyria, who went to Assyria? Okay, the northern ten tribes went to Assyria. So a lot of well-known names here and significant sites. And um, this is the area of the world where Abraham would have come from and traveled up and around and down into Canaan. And by the way, when Abraham commanded his servant to send who? Uh, or to, when, Abra when Abraham commanded his servant to go find a wife for his son Isaac among his own people, this wasn't a one-week journey. Look at how far he had to go. There's no 401. He was probably gone for a year, maybe more. So oftentimes in the Bible, when we're reading the Bible, when we understand the geography, it helps us to understand what's taking place. Something that's just stated in a sentence could have been several weeks, several months, several years uh, of, of travel. So we're talking about some, some significant reasons to try to understand the geography. 
Now, um, before the year 3000, I'll share several things with you about this area. Before the year 3000, or before the year 2000, which is around the time Abraham entered Canaan, the land of Canaan, in this area for, for over a thousand years, civilizations rose and civilizations fell. Significant civilizations. This wasn't like a backward part of the world by ancient standards. Abraham basically moved from Toronto to Essex. He moved from a highly advanced, uh, ethnically diverse area of the world to a relatively unknown part of that, the world at the time. So he wasn't some guy just wandering around the desert and all of a sudden he came into the land of Israel. He stayed within the Fertile Crescent. You'll notice that Israel is still part of the Fertile Crescent. But he came out of, a, a, his background, his family's background would have been out of several civilizations. So sometimes we have this image in our mind that Abraham was almost like the founder of human history. That everyone else was a barbarian at the time. That's just simply not true. Uh, but he is the first major character that we meet post-flood in the Bible. So if you read Genesis, you have the flood mentioned, and then basically a list of names. By the way, that's a truncated list. The genealogies of the Bible, uh, if you're challenged by an atheist or someone and you try to maintain the genealogies of the Bible, literally record every generation, you will fail that argument because the Bible itself illustrates the fact that genealogical records are truncated. So if you go to Matthew chapter 1, there's 16 generations, 16 generations, 16 generations. Just go read your Old Testament. There's a lot more than that. But they're using 16, 16, and 16 as a literary tool to match up with David's name, who comes at the beginning of a list, whose name in Hebrew adds up to the number 16. So it's more of a literary technique than a desire to actually record every generation. So we don't really know how many centuries or millennia passed between Abraham and the, and the flood event because we're not given all the names. We're just given likely a summary of his genealogy. So during this time, uh, the first thing that would have risen up in this area is stone settlement. So this is before they were making mud bricks to build houses. They were basically building things out of stone. So if you go back and you're doing an archaeological dig in, you know, just pick an area, Nineveh, the oldest layers are stone layers, layers of stone walls. And then later as you move along, you, you have uh, mud brick buildings that, that would be stacked on top of those. And some people believe, depending on when we, we, we date creation, that people were, could have been living in here as, as uh, far back as 6,000, 8,000 BC. This is like, this is f farther back from Abraham to the beginning of time than it is from us to Abraham. And I think, man, Abraham lived a long, long time ago, 4,000 years. Well, there's at least that much civilization before Abraham. Just think about that for a moment that existed. So lots and lots of things happened. Now, during this time, uh, there, there were some settlements in Israel. So you see this uh, mention here. This is Jericho. And secular archaeologists believe that Jericho might have been founded as far back as 8,000 B.C., and uh, Jericho started out as probably an, an encampment, 
that people would go to at certain times of the year when the grass was green to graze their cattle. They would build sort of temporary structures and then they'd move on because people were nomadic. And over the course of time, people moved from being nomadic to semi-nomadic to localized. And if you then go to Jericho today to do archaeological digs, some of the layers of civilization go down as far as 45 feet. That's a long way. So they'd build a, a city or an encampment. It would come in and get squashed by raiders. Uh, then they would, or weather patterns would change, and it wouldn't be as livable for a few centuries. The whole, you know, global warming, global cooling, that's been taking place for a long time. Then it would be resettled, then it would be beaten down, then resettled and beaten down. So this, this, this uh, created layers and layers and layers of civilization. If you'd like to see it in my office, I have a bowl that was dug up in Jer Jericho in the early Bronze Age, sometime in and around 3000 to 2000 BC. And it's broken into three pieces, but it's been glued back together. That, those kind of fragments would just have been scattered on the ground and built up, built up, built up, built up, built up, built up. So lots and lots of layers of civilization there. Uh, developed cultures uh, at Jericho, most assuredly, so people guess maybe six to 8,000, but they pretty much know for a fact that developed cultures at Jericho dated back as far as 45, or sorry, as far as 5,000 years before Abraham. And they include in the rubble tools and item, items of commerce. And some of those items of commerce and trade include turquoise and shells. So here you are. That would have come from areas like this and even further out. Well, if you're digging up shells that you know don't naturally occur in the Mediterranean or this area, but they're from here, that just proves there's a lot of commerce and trade taking place between some of these uh, ancient peoples. Another uh, tell, um, by, the word, by the way, if you see the word tell, T-E-L, Tel Aviv or Tel Jerusalem or Tel Nineveh, what that refers to is uh, an area that's been destroyed and resettled, destroyed and resettled, destroyed and resettled. So this word Tel... If you're in Mesopotamia or Palestine, sometimes when you're looking out at the land, you'll see something like this. That's a tell. And what that is, is that is a composite of layers and layers and layers and layers of cities that have been smashed down and built up. So it's very common to see even modern cities built on the top of tells. So the, these are tells in the land. And in northern Iraq, archaeologists have done a lot of work at a tell called Tel Yarmo. Now that's spelled with a J, J-A-R-M-O. And this also bears witness to a high level of advanced civilization comparable to Jericho. So basically, what we know is somewhere in this area and somewhere in this area, basically back to the beginning of time, people were settling towns and cities, first as seasonal encampments, and then later as permanent residences. Now, this area, Egypt, um, this shoreline has also changed with time and filled in a little bit, and some of it 
that was developed is now underwater. But this Nile River basin is where the majority of uh, Egyptians have lived because that's their source of fresh water. So you don't have people living out here in the Sahara Desert. Egyptian culture even today is more or less along the Nile. And uh, we know that in and around 3000 to 4000 BC, people began to come down from Mesopotamia through the Sinai and began to settle along the Nile and tame the land and uh, uh, cultivate the land and so forth as well. And during this period of time, again, this is pre-3000, people increasingly move from food gathering to food producing cultures. So what does that look like? This is the time of, the, of human civilization where instead of walking out in a field and um, hoping you stumble across a stalk of corn or wheat, people would take it and thought, hey, maybe we should start growing it in plots, claim it as our own, and they would start growing their own produce. Or instead of you know chasing down animals day by day to get breakfast, you would start to herd them and domesticate them and so forth. So this, again, was all taking place well before Abraham showed up. So across Mesopotamia then, some of the things that we know they were doing, they were, uh, they were actually... Uh, draining the land. So they were draining swamp lands. They were filling it in. They were settling it. They were developing forms of irrigation to bring in water. They were uh, also developing writing during this time. And pottery slowly began to develop to replace what? Stone. It's a whole lot simpler to make a clay dish and heat it in a fire, in a kiln, than it is to chisel away at a stone dish. The stone dish would last for generations, but it's much more labor intensive. So with the realization that you could take clay and purify it as much as possible and fire it in a kiln, all of a sudden we have this rapid movement uh, toward pottery all throughout Mesopotamia. Now, some of these areas in Mesopotamia were very densely settled and included everything from mud huts to mud brick huts. So mud huts to mud brick huts. So we go from stone to mud to mud brick. And of course, I would imagine that the particular area that you're in would dictate to some degree whether you're going to you know, go with stone or go with mud or go with mud brick, depending on the weather patterns and whatnot. Uh, writing also developed during this period toward the end of the fourth millennia. And most scholars believe that the Sumerians were probably some of the earliest peoples to develop writing. So I'm going to do a little bit of a presentation for you on the development of writing, because this is kind of important to human civilization and to the fact that we received a Bible in a written form. Circa, the C stands for circa. That means like in and around, because we're not 100% sure. In and around 3100 BC, pictographs were developed. I'll show you some pictures of these in a moment. But pictographs were developed, and the purpose of that is you would take a common commodity like barley, and you would create a picture of barley. So when you're making receipts up or you're keeping ledgers of what you've produced, you would 
draw a stalk of barley on there and maybe some dots or dashes around it, maybe six dots for six bushels of barley or whatnot. And, and then you would create a picture, a stylized picture of an ox, and you'd create a stylized picture of a man and a stylized picture of God. And different pictures were developed. And for uh, probably over a thousand years or more, people relied on pictographs from the word picture to communicate. And then around 3000 and onwards, a new kind of writing was developed called cuneiform. And basically they took a stylus, like an ancient pencil. The end of it was shaped like a wedge and they would begin to take the pictures and simplify them into wedge shaped designs. So they would press this wedge into wet clay tablets and you'd move from basically a more literal picture of barley to something that was more of a representation of barley. And people would get to know, okay, this, this series of indentations of wedge-shaped forms represents barley. Then um, they moved into more of what we would now call an alphabet. Now, most of the early alphabets did not have vowels. They only had what we would call consonants. So vowels were sort of the vocalizations that you would make with your voice between the consonants. The consonants were written down. So we're moving now from pictures to stylized pictures to now trying to represent sounds, but they would only represent the sounds of consonants, and you just have to remember what vowels are supposed to go in between the consonants. And best as we can tell, the uh, the Greek alphabet, the Hebrew alphabet, ultimately, uh, you know, all early alphabets probably started with what was known as the Phoenician or Proto, meaning pre-Canaanite alphabet. I'll show you a picture of this in a moment. And uh, from this baseline alphabet, all of a sudden there's an explosion of alphabets in basically all cultures. And pictographs and cuneiform sort of quickly go the way of the dodo bird. And then the next major development is what's called the Aramaic alphabet. And there's an initial form that's called the script. It's more like the like cursive. And the square is more like you know printed letters. So the Bible was probably first written in Aramaic script. And then the uh, Hebrew Bible was up, when the alphabet was updated, it was updated to Aramaic square. So here's just an example then of, and there would have been many of these depending on the culture you're in. This is an example of pictographs. So this, what does this look like? A face. Now, I, I didn't even look these up. I'm not sure what all these mean, but presumably that's a face. Now, I do know that these are um, images of God. So this would be like a picture of God. How do you describe God? Well, it kind of looks like a star shaped. And, you know, who knows what these other things, this might have been water or road or whatnot. This might have been a vessel. I'm not really sure. But... You can Google this kind of stuff. There's there's lots and lots of examples of pictographs of people trying to put in writing common items that were part of their culture or common concepts. Now, from pictographs, then we have the development of cuneiform. And uh, you'll notice some dates here. That says 3200 BC, 3000, 2400, and 1000. So you see the movement. So this is a head. It looks more like a head. Then for whatever reason, a couple hundred years later, they, they dropped the head on its back. Maybe for whatever reason, the way they formed it, it was quicker to do it backwards. Then you move to sort of more of a 
more of an abstract. You can sort of see the same shape, but now they're drawing it with this wedges. See how there's like a triangulation on the top and then a line? Each of these sticks is one wedge imprint from your stylus. And then even by 1,000, this is now a full cuneiform, uh, basically a, a letter representing, it's not even a letter, it's a word all wrapped up in one imprint on a tablet. Um, here you have walk. Again, you have uh, obviously a, a foot. Then the foot's flipped on its back. Then it sort of becomes more abstract. And then you just have like a stick and a couple dashes here. And that's cuneiform. Hand, one, two, three, four fingers and a thumb. Then it's flipped, and then it increasingly becomes more abstract. Here's your barley. So clearly that looks like a barley, um, uh, the head of a piece of, uh, of, a, of a barley plant. It's flipped. It becomes increasingly stylized. Bread, not, maybe that's because the bowl it was made in looked like that. I'm not really sure. Uh, water, okay, there's water. We saw that in an earlier picture, stylized. Day, see the sun coming up over the horizon? Then it's flipped. Bird, so there's your little rubber duck. It's flipped, and now you're into cuneiform. So what we have is basically a movement from pictures to something that's more abstract or representational of the concept. So you'd go to school now and you'd have to learn it. This you wouldn't really have to learn. Oh, that's barley. That's a hand. That's a foot. You know, maybe that's a knight. Whatever. You might get it wrong. But the point is, you'd probably just recognize this if you'd never seen it before. But now you have to actually learn the cuneiform. Now, over time, various alphabets develop. Now, so we have cuneiform, but then it's depending on the people group. They're now developing their own alphabets or keeping cuneiform. Uh, in play for longer than other groups. Some people were using cuneiform up to the first century after Christ, really backward cultures. Others for uh, over a millennia before had already moved into alphabets. Now this is one of the earliest uh, alphabets called the Phoenician alphabet. And out of this alphabet, not the shapes, but out of the general rundown, we have even a lot of our English sounds developing. So this is Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalit, He, Vav, or Wow, Zion, Haith, Taith. Now look at these. This is just a little dash, so it doesn't look like an A, but this forms an A sound. B, G, D, H, W, Z, H. Yod, Kaf, Lamed. This looks like an L. Mem, Nun, Samak, Ayan, Pei, Tzadik, Kof, Sheen, Sheen, or Seen. A s or sh sound in tau. Now, these don't look exactly like Hebrew, but these line up with the sounds they make line up with the Hebrew alphabet. So if you can remember Aleph, Beit, Gimel, and then you look at the, era, the modern Aramaic, Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalet, He, Vav, Zion, what are these sounds? There's A, B, G, D, H, W, Z, more of a sh. But see how even our alphabet today is essentially grounded in seminal form in the Phoenician alphabet thousands of years ago. 
So we have a movement from pictures to pictures represented in cuneiform to a Phoenician alphabet, out of which most modern alphabets are in some way based. So even Greek, Greek, this is like the equivalent of alpha, beta, gamma, delta, um, zeta, eta, theta, yoda, kappa, lambda, mu, nu. This would be C. So we have Phoenician, we have Aramaic, we have Hebrew, we have Greek, we have English, French, all, all, pretty much all the modern alphabets, Latin-based alphabets, are based in this design from the Phoenicians. And while they've changed, I mean, this, this kind of still looks like an M. We've kind of been doing M the same way for millennia, literally. Um, we've changed our equivalent of a T. Uh, the Q here doesn't look that much different than a modern Q. Uh, some of these are a little bit different. If we move to the uh, the modern uh, Aramaic, again, they look different, but the sounds are there. So this Aleph, by the way, just as an example, originally was the head of an ox. So we move from a picture to cuneiform to this very abstract representation. It's we, They don't just call it a, we have kind of boring names for our letters, A, B, C. They actually had names for them, Aleph, Bet, Gimel. The Greeks had different names, Alpha, Beta, Gamma. But it, it's all based upon this ancient form of writing, which has developed and developed and developed over time. So I, I think I find this stuff kind of fascinating. But any comments or questions about uh, any of these slides, the development of writing? Or maybe you know something about this. I don't know. You could add to the conversation. But um, what are your thoughts? Aramaic, by the way, originally was in a cursive form. So I just skipped that one. But it was a cursive form. And the Aramaic square is the alphabet that is still used today in the Hebrew language. So it's a base alphabet. So there's no such thing as the Hebrew alphabet. There's the Aramaic square alphabet, which Hebrews use. Uh, well, nowadays they would just write with everything we would write. Um, they would write with uh, the stylus still. They would mark it into, basically, if, if this this mark, I know you can't see it at the back, this marker has like a wedge-shaped end to it. Yeah, so it's a little thicker at the top. Make that a little more defined in the form of a wooden stick, and that's what you would press into uh, clay with. So the... The early forms of writing for general use would have been clay tablets. If you're obviously doing an inscription, you'd carve it in stone. So the temples and that would have like permanent writing. You're not going to go carve it in stone just to give your buddy a grocery list. But you'd <laughs> press it into clay. Then um, the next big sort of advancement in writing was, you've probably heard of papyri or papyrus. So this was actually developed, best as we can tell, in Egypt, where they took the papyrus reeds and interwove them, much like fabric. We interweave fabric today and flatten it, and they would write on papyrus, which is where most of the New Testament manuscripts are written. And on occasion, they would, always write, they would also write on vellum, which is um, the backside of uh, leather, usually from a goat or sheep. 
And then up to about the 1900s, most books, especially in our language, are written on um, on uh, linen, like what looks like paper, but most books in the library that are over 150 years old look like paper, but they're actually linen. And then we have the, more of the development of paper into the present. But a Hebrew writer could take this and write it out by hand, just like we would write our language by hand, or type it out in a typewriter, etc. Now, the the one interesting thing is, as far as we can tell, the Phoenicians and the early writers wrote our direction, left to right. Hebrew was originally written up and down and is now written right to left. And again, these are consonants. Now, some of them sound like vowels, like aleph, that sounds like an A, but that's actually a consonant, functions as a consonant. It's silent in a word, and they have another what they do is they cluster around these consonants, little dots and dashes when you're learning this language to help you learn to pronounce it. So unlike English, where you can have you know any number of letters in a word, all Semitic languages are based on a three-consonantal root. So you, you pick three consonants, Okay, let's just say it's Aleph, Beit, Gimel. And you write it from right to left. And then you add prefixes and suffixes. And you add vowel marks around it. And you expand or you contract the word. If you want to pluralize a word, you add Im, Elohim, Jerusalem. All these Im endings, this is the equivalent of our our S, which pluralizes. But you always read right to left, three consonants, suffixes and prefixes, and then you add your little dots and dashes around it. They all have their own little names and whatnot. And uh, then you have a word, and as you grow up, you begin to delete these things. So if you just pick up a modern Hebrew book or newspaper, all you see is consonants. You don't see the dots and the dashes. The dots and the dashes weren't added until about 1,200 years ago because people started to forget how to say the words. And you probably know then that this is where the debate comes as to how you actually say the name of God. Because the name of God, Yahweh, is only consonants. We don't know what the original vowel sounds were. They were lost because you weren't allowed to say it. And so we... You know, depending on where you're from, you might say Yahweh or Yahweh or, you know, whatever. I mean, you, you can kind of, there's a little bit of flexibility in terms of the uh, the vowels. Yep. Do you know how you differentiate, like, helpers, dots, and Um, okay. I used to know that. There's probably around 12, give or take. Yeah. And they're vowel. What they are is they're, they call them vowel markers. So they're not true vowels, but they're vowel markers. On occasion, certain letters like Vav, I say wow because it's more of the ancient pronunciation. This is more like the modern one. But wow or Vav, that's like the equivalent of a W, and that can function as either a uh, consonant or a, um, a vowel. So that's why Yahweh, which is actually four consonants, the reason why it's four and not three is because the W is functioning more as a 
vowel than it is as a consonant. Yeah. So they would function uh, your letters are your alpha are your numbers. So one, two, three, four, five, yada yada yada. Um, some of the early pictographs used dots, but it would probably depend on the part of the world. So you might have like a, a barley and then like six dots beside it. So whatever measurement of barley that was, there's six. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, that comes from the Greek word phone, which means voice. So a lot of modern English words either have Latin or Greek roots. So phone, uh, phone is the word for voice, graphe is the word for writing, put them together, written sound, phonograph is where that word would come from. Most uh, sciences, um, all the ologies comes from the Greek word logos, which means word. So a lot of, basically English is just a uh, uh, rip off of a whole bunch of other people's ideas and linguistic work and alphabets. It's, ver it's not very original. It's just built, built, built on previous uh, civilizations. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, it's it's if you took a Hebrew dictionary and you looked up any word in its lexical, like its original form, it would always appear in a three-consonantal root, because that's the root. But there's larger words and shorter words in Hebrew because you add prefixes and suffixes to it. You add letters before and letters afterwards. But it's always based upon a three-consonantal root. And the, there, the Hebrew is more... Ancient Hebrew is more difficult to translate than Greek, which, thank God, our, most of our theology comes from the New Testament. It's written in a more precise language like ours. But the problem is, is when you're translating from ancient Hebrew texts, sometimes there are multiple words that share the same root. And so on occasion, the context doesn't help you. You might be left with two or three choices. So you're generally the context will help you to understand how to translate a word, but let's just say you have a word. Let's just say there's 20 words in Hebrew that have a Zion, Mem, Kof root. If you, if you added all the vowel pointings and the prefixes and suffixes, you know, I don't know, that stands for giraffe, and this one stands for tree. But if you remove all the vowel pointings, and assume that everybody knows by the context what that means and move forward 2,000 years so people are thinking differently, talking differently. There are times when you're reading through Hebrew trying to translate it and you're like, I have no idea what this word means. And that's why in many of our modern translations at the bottom, it, it might asterisk a word or put a number and say, this could mean this or this. Generally, that's because the consonantal root could be interpreted a couple different ways. There are some smaller words like pointer words like F, like toward, little, almost like mini words. They're not nouns or verbs, but they're more like uh, the equivalent of like prepositions in, uh, in English. Yeah. Any other comments or questions? The history of writing.
Um, I don't know if they developed it later, but these functioned as the the numbers. So, certainly, like you would never open a Hebrew Bible and find anything other than these. No, no, even. Uh, Chapter and verse numbers were added well, well after the time of Christ, just because it was getting a little idiotic to say, you know, roll out the Isaiah scroll and walk 30 feet down it, and that's the verse I want you to memorize. Well, it depends on whether you're a size 6 or size 10, you wind up at the wrong spot. So they added chapters first, and then later subdivided the chapters into verse, verse numbers. Yeah. All right. Um. Okay, so that's a little bit about the history of writing. And so Abraham then would have, would have come into Palestine, probably being familiar with something like this. So chances are he wasn't using uh, pictographs. If you go back to this chart here, he's sort of in between cuneiform and Phoenician. So he probably would have been familiar with something like this as you know the head of a large tribe he most likely would have been somewhat literate and would have been using some sort of uh, proto-canaanite language like this one now from there uh in palestine we have um so now we're moving from mesopotamia just down to a brief discussion about palestine during this period we have uh Villages popping up, stone tools, and copper is starting to be used. Houses are now being built of sun-dried bricks rather than stone. Now, the thing we like about stone structures is they last longer. So a lot of the sites in Mesopotamia and Israel maybe even in Egypt, that were built of mud bricks, have not survived as long as the ones that were older than them. But nevertheless, it was a quicker way of building and a little neater and tidier way. So people were building bricks of, or building houses of uh, mud bricks. And often they would uh, plaster the insides and do uh, artwork on them and whatnot. So they, they weren't just ugly little holes in the uh, ground. But no major famous civilization occupied the land of Canaan. It was like the tail of the Fertile Crescent. All of the activity was taking place in Mesopotamia proper. Also, during this time, Egypt had no dynasties that had been founded or pyramids built. The pyramids were built uh, in and around uh, the fourth millennia. And... Um, or sorry, yeah, Egypt first started to erect the pyramids in and around, so people debated it, somewhere between the 4th millennia and 2600 BC. Egypt basically was really civilized. When Abraham entered the land of Palestine, it had fallen apart. Mesopotamia had fallen apart. Palestine had fallen apart. This is why Abraham could go down to Egypt and just kind of hang out with the king and let him take his wife for a while and have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with him because Israel had, uh, Egypt had sort of fallen from its former glory and was small and insignificant, and then it sort of rose back up. So this is, uh, this is just an overview of different things that took place in Mesopotamia pre-3000. Uh, now, 
from 3000 onward, things began to change. And these are some statues. Some of them are, I mean, they're not super accurate, but there's some details in these statues that give you a little bit of an idea about what Sumerians look like. Curly hair, uh, more almost Arab, Asiatic looking, uh, large eyed. By the way, there's some ridiculous morons today that have studied these statues and say this is proof that ancient Sumerians encountered aliens. <laughs> you've, you've probably heard some of these tales. It's ridiculous. The reason why they put these large eyes in them is because they wanted to show they were looking out toward the gods. And these eyes, most of which, this one's fallen out, but these eyes are made of a blue stone called um, uh, lapis or lazy lapis. I can't remember the exact name. And this, what is it? Lapis lazu. That came from quite a ways away. And were inserted into these as like a, basically a, a bit of a precious stone or, or gem. So this is the Samaritan culture. So the Samaritans, oh sorry, Sumerians, not Samaritans, came into power. Their classical Sumerian age was dated to 2850 to uh, 2360, so for about 500 years. And the Sumerians were a group of non-Semitic. Semitic are the people that descended from Shem, of which Abraham was one. These were non-Semitic people who lived in the region as far back as 5500 BC, but it wasn't until the third millennia, 2850 to 2360, that they, they came to power. Initially, there was no overarching government or capital uh, or even total unification of the people. What you would typically see in Mesopotamia during this time was city-states. So back to our map. Instead of thinking of this as a country, there, there weren't really countries per se at the time. Civilization moved from nomadic people to semi-nomadic people to settlements to city-states and then to countries. So this, in a sense, was like its, its own modern equivalent of a country. It had its own king, its own gods, its own house of worship. They would have had theirs, 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 and so forth and so on. But during this period of time, the Sumerian, Sumerian peoples lived throughout the Fertile Crescent. And city-states were the norm, each had their own gods. A priest known as an ensi, this is the priest king, would rule the particular city-state. But there was no differentiation between the political and the sacred. There's no separation of church and state, so to speak. The Ensi was both a spiritual leader and a political leader. And in the Mesopotamian mindset, you can't separate the two. Just like in the modern, many modern Middle Eastern countries. You cannot separate state from faith. That's why Muslims don't get us from the Middle East. They don't get us. They, they cannot comprehend a state that's not Christian or not Buddhist. This is an ancient concept. So we have... The NC ruling the city, and what would happen through various skirmishes and wars is he might become a vassal of a more powerful local ruler. 
the study of vassalage is very, very important even to our understanding of Scripture. The kings of the Old Testament theologically were vassals of Yahweh God. We are vassals of God. This is like the precursor to the idea of servants or slaves of God. The vassal is the NC who may be, let's say, ruling Ur, but maybe Lagish at a particular point in time becomes more powerful, and there's a skirmish, and he says, look, I can do one of things. I can wipe you out, or you can become my vassal. And that means every year you've got to give me 100 bushels of barley, and I'll leave you alone and protect you. So we have city-states, but then we have skirmishes, and now we have clusters of city-states beginning to develop, and those sort of form broader states than just one particular city. Metalworking and gem cutting during this period of time became highly developed, highly developed. There was lots of trade and trading, and with the development of writing, they began to write epic myths, flood narratives, laws began to be written down, stories, erotic stories, the early forebears of pornography started to be written. And the chief god among most of these people, there, there was localized gods, there was a chief god, and the chief god among the Sumerians was Enlil. Many times, even centuries later, when the Jews were dialoguing with their friends, maybe not Maybe, maybe friends is the wrong word. They're, the people they were sort of neighboring with, whether they were at peace with them or at war, they would feel quite comfortable recognizing Yahweh, but Yahweh was just a regional god for them. So we're okay with Yahweh, but we got our own god. Our god rules this area. Your god rules that area. It's actually very Canadian. You know, sort of whatever you believe, you believe. It doesn't really matter to me. Uh, you're right, I'm right, we're all right. So this was sort of a, a, an ancient sort of... Um, form of uh, postmodernism. See, even postmodernism isn't all that modern. So this is sort of Yahweh's territory. This might be another god. This might be um, Marduk. He's in Babylon. And Enlil's sort of the, the head god. And he's considered the god of the storm. They were very afraid of storms, obviously. And Enlil was the god of the storm. Now, in religious practices in Sumerian Mesopotamia, one placated the gods for mere survival. And so out of this, you have various cult and cultic practices developed. And the Sumerians also highly developed various law codes, many of which are no longer in existence, but may be referenced in 25th century legal codes from the ancient city-state of Lagish. So they've dug up lots of ancient law codes. We'll talk about those later tonight in different cities, and those are probably like the great-grandchildren of some of the early laws that the Sumerian kings put into place to govern their people. And they dealt with everything from property rights to slave relationships to, to sexual laws to economic laws, etc., etc. Um, let's just take a five-minute break, and I uh, see it's 7.40, and then we'll come back and we'll talk about the next group of people that sort of took over from the Sumerians. Okay. So the Sumerians then were uh, ruling and populating Mesopotamia.
looks something like this. The bald guy is some sort of a priest. The priests typically shave their heads. Men wore beards. So, well, this thing's malfunctioning. Auto. <laughs> Very technical. There we go. I got her going again. Pretty bad when you have a doctor and you can't handle a laser pointer. But um, as Kirsten pointed out, women were straightening their hair. Men preferred the curl. This lady, she's got curly hair. Um, generally, the kings were always portrayed as being taller. I mean, it's highly doubtful that every king just happened to be taller than everybody else. But they're always portrayed in artwork as a little taller. Uh, at this point, they're not really developing... The, the, the muscles, but in, in later um, uh, art, the musculature of bare-chested men was always, everybody's like ripped, basically, right? So, yeah, like Adrian, yeah. yeah. Like I used to be before my accident. <laughs> but uh, the Sumerians, over to my little chart here, <clears throat> again, weren't a country, they were a people group ruling in city-states. So then there's an influx of immigrants, not quite sure from where, maybe from the north, and they were they became known as the Akkadians. And the Akkadians lived in and amongst the Sumerians, but the difference is, is that the Sumerians were not Semitic people, the Akkadians were Semitic people. And over the course of time, the Akkadians sort of took over Mesopotamia. I don't know if they had more kids or what, but they took over Mesopotamia. And Sumerians and Akkadians just sort of like blended together, but the, 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 the kings were of now Akkadian stock. Now, some of them would call themselves the kings of Sumer and Akkadia, or Sumer and Akkad, which was one of their capital cities. And just jumping ahead a little bit, we'll come to this in a little while. Later, there's an influx of people known as the Amorites, who according to the Genesis record are not Semitic. I think they're descendants of Ham. But they adopted Semitic culture through the Akkadians and probably did more than some of the early Semitic peoples to promote the Semitic languages and Semitic cultures. And then the Hebrews, through Abraham, came out of the... Amorite Akkadian people, but were in fact descendant from Shem and therefore were Semitics. So you have sort of this, this back and forth, and this didn't happen overnight, this happened over several centuries. So the Akkadians then, they're an ancient people uh, living in Mesopotamia of Semitic background. What they did is they borrowed the Sumerian script or writing style but they spoke an entirely different language, much like you can speak French, you can speak English, you can speak German, but we all use the same alphabet. So we're using the same script, but we're speaking a different language. And they borrowed a lot of <clears throat> um, the Sumerian gods as they developed their own understanding of divinity. Now, this is just an, uh, uh, this is a mask, a famous mask, you might have seen this before, of an Akkadian Sumerian king. And this mask is um, made out of bronze, I believe. 
again, during the early Bronze Age or late Bronze Age. And you'll notice like a lot of detail goes into the beard, uh, even the mustache, all these little lines. His eyebrows, if you look closely, are separated. There's a ridge here. There's hair coming out the bottom, hair coming out the top. So it's very stylized, like every hair is sort of defined. Um, even the hair sticking out from under his crown is you know, very defined. Now, in this particular mask, this mask was found in Nineveh. It's not a Ninevite mask. It was probably captured from Akkad in the south during a battle and carried away. And somebody decided, because the, the, some of the kings at the time considered themselves divine or gods, they could see everything and hear everything. You can't see this on this mask, but the ears are chopped out and the eyes are chopped out. So this is sort of like a way of them saying, well, we've caught you and you're not divine. You cannot see everything. You cannot hear everything. So we're going to keep your mask, put it on display, and let everybody know that by taking out the eyes, this is not a real guy's head, but by taking out the eyes of the mask and by taking off the ears that you're not who you think you are. So basically, same as today, these guys all had huge egos. And when they you know, capture or conquer, they all had to you know, make a dramatic point. And this was one of the ways that they would make this dramatic point. So in somewhere between 2400 and 2200 BC, uh, the Akkadians officially seized control of Mesopotamia. And the greatest king of Akkadia, some people believe this, this might be his face mask, but it, it could be several generations before or after, was Sargon. Heard of Sargon? There's a Sargon and then... Like 1,600 years later, his name's so famous, there's another uh, Mesopotamian king, I think he's Sargon II, who borrows his name. But Sargon was sort of the guy that, that put the control of Mesopotamia uh, into the hands of the Akkadian people. Now, their kingdom, the Akkadian kingdom, uh, became vast. They had vast uh, trade contracts with different people groups. And this, during this period of time is when the kings, and it, it kind of varied a little bit generation by generation, but some of the kings actually began to uh, teach that they themselves were endowed with divinity. So kingship moved from a priesthood representing the gods to I am God. And the Akkadians also contributed to Mesopotamian culture through their laws, their myths. There's lots of flood narratives about the world being flooded. They have creation myths. Um, there's plenty of tablets um, about economic matters. And the kings of Akkad mention by name in some of their trade contracts, Jericho, Gaza, Jerusalem, and Megiddo. So these four cities in ancient Canaan, before Abraham ever showed up, were already populated, and there evidently were trade relationships between the ancient Canaanites and the kings of Akkad that was taking place. Now, during this time, 3,000 to 2,000, what was taking place down in good old Canaan? 
Uh, this was known as the Early Bronze Age. They were they were probably uh, four to five hundred years behind Mesopotamia in the development of bronze. So this area here and this area here uh, were were using bronze instruments about five to six hundred years before the Canaanites. They had trade relationships, but maybe they didn't want them to find out how they made bronze. Bronze ore was being mined. Uh, in this area, a little bit of gold ore was being mined up in Europe, some tin. But they were basically figuring out how to how to mine these metals out of rock. And certain people groups, I mean, it's got a little bit of a different... How do you, I, don't, I often wonder, like, how do you figure that out? You're just out in a field one day, here's a rock. Let's go smelt it down. And, oh, there's a drop of stuff, and let's get it together and make swords. I, I don't know how that happened. I think they were, like, geniuses compared to us. Maybe they did have, like, big heads and big eyes. I don't know. But... Um, it blows my mind some of these things they came up with, which is based on no previous knowledge. Everything we know is based upon someone else's work. But these people developed this stuff, and I often wonder, who thought it up? Like, who thought it up? Um, Abraham had not arrived. Canaan was underdeveloped. It was inferior to Mesopotamia in terms of its development and culture. It was inferior to Egypt for most of its history before the Jews settled it. Cities, there were some cities there that were fortified, Jericho and Bet-Shion, notably. Bet-Shion is right around here, just under the um, Sea of Galilee. Those were fortified ancient cities. The language of the tribes living there, again, there was no like nation. There's no prime minister, no president, just nomadic, semi-nomadic peoples. Was likely a precursor to Hebrew and almost undoubtedly was written uh, almost undoubtedly was some sort of a Semitic language, a sister language to Hebrew and, and, and Ar- modern-day Arabic and, and Aramaic. But at the time, at the time, the Canaanites living in this land had borrowed their alphabet from Egypt. So whereas the Sumerians were developing language in the north and were using the Phoenician la- the Phoenician alphabet, which later goes into Aramaic. The Canaanites at the time had borrowed their alphabet from some of the scripts that were being developed in Egypt. So coming to the end then of the third millennia, Sumerian culture was starting to wane in the north and Egypt was in steep political decline. Canaan was like the outback. It really was not all that developed. And the Sumerians and the Semites had intermixed ethnically and culturally at this time. So then we have this guy, Abraham, who comes on the scene in and around 2000 BC. Mesopotamia has lost its power. Egypt was not powerful. Canaan was disorganized. And in chaos, people move around, just like in our country. If there's economic instability in our city, everybody moves out west. Then there's problems out west, everybody moves back out east, right? So this was in decline. So people are like, well, what do we got to lose? So people uh, started moving down through uh, this area of the world. Some went down into the Nile and settled more down there. But Abraham was part of a mass immigration, as best as we can tell, of people, Semitic peoples from the north, moving down into uh, the south. And uh, during this time, there was... um, a little bit of a revival in Ur, down in the south there by the Arrow. This was known as the third dynasty of Ur, and it was considered a neo 
Sumerian kingdom, which existed only for about 100 years or so from uh, 2060 to 1950 BC. And um, during this period, the uh, Sumerian Akkadian culture governed the area, but it, it, was, it, it was never centralized around one government. Akkad had lost its, uh, its luster, and so again, people are starting to, to move to the south. And that's probably, you know, the, the part the Bible doesn't give us all information, but that's probably one of the reasons why, uh, you know, Abraham was looking to his God for direction because he lived during a time of political instability. Just like some Christians today, you're out of work, you're like, God, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to move? Do you want me to immigrate? Do you want me to emigrate? Well, this was probably the cultural backdrop. We believe God spoke to Abraham, of course, but the cultural backdrop was things really aren't good at home. I got to find a place to raise my, my family and to sort of you know, try to get ahead. So he begins to move down to the south. Now, there's obviously a lot of um, impact upon, um, uh, there's a lot of impact upon Mesopotamia and Canaan as a result of uh, this instability. And um, during this period of time, uh, a group of people from the north from the hills known as the Amorites began to move in. We don't know much about their origins, but they began to move in and sort of take over and populate Mesopotamia. And you'll read in the Bible about different times when Abraham and his, uh, sorry, Abraham's descendants battled uh, with the, the Amorites. There was also another group called the Elamites that ravaged Ur in and around 1950. And that brought to the end the third dynasty uh, of Ur. And so these uh, Semitic slash Amorite slash Akkadian peoples begin to not only flow into Mesopotamia, but begin to flow to the south. Now, back in Mesopotamia, uh, between Abraham's arrival in Palestine and the Jews coming back some five 550, 600 years later to actually settle it, Babylon and Assyria began to develop. And it was back and forth, back and forth, Babylon, then Assyria, Babylon, then Assyria. But in and around 1750 is when Babylon moved from basically a little village to a superpower. And the king that is credited with the rise of Babylon is Hammurabi. Have you heard of him? What's Hammurabi famous for? Someone said it, I heard it. Hammurabi's Code. The Code of Hammurabi or the Laws of Hammurabi. Now, Hammurabi was not the first Sumerian, Akkadian, Amorite king to come up with the idea of writing laws to govern his people. Several centuries earlier, another king by the name of Ur, Nemu had already written some laws that actually sound a lot like the laws we have from uh, Hammurabi. But Hammurabi's laws uh, in the ancient Near East became sort of like the standard, the, the famous, the most famous laws of the time. Now, a little bit about Hammurabi. Not only was he sort of uh, deceitful, he would make treaties with different cities, and then he'd break them for his own political gain. He was able to, uh, he inherited the uh, the kingdom from his father, 
whose name was Sin Mublet. It was weak. It was um, dying. It wasn't you know, a, a great inheritance. He inherited this little kingdom. But by the end of his life, he had basically taken over this area of the world. And in order to govern his people, it was very important for him that he would be viewed as a, a king of justice. So he put into place several laws that would guide his people. In fact, around 258 of them. And uh, I wanted to show you how these laws were spread. So this is called a stel. And on the top, there is a seated figure and a standing figure. Now, being this is Hammurabi's laws and he's the king, who do you think is sitting on the throne? His wife. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> That's good. I wasn't expecting that. Was that Jack? Okay, nobody tell Linda, okay? What's, what's said in this room stays in this room. <laughs> no, but you would think it would be Hammurabi, right? But this is Hammurabi. This is his god. And the way we know from Sumerian art who the gods are is their tiaras have these lines on them. Those represent horns. Like the more horns, the greater the god. So this is the god. And Hammurabi, this is probably, I'm not sure what god this would be, but the main god during his time was Marduk. And so this might be Marduk, not sure. This is Hammurabi, and he is portrayed as the guy who's getting the laws from his god. And then this stel is rows and rows and rows, you can't see him in this picture, rows and rows and rows and rows and rows and rows of his laws written out in his language. And these stels exist all over Mesopotamia. You can find them up in Nineveh. You can find them down in the south. And they were, they're Hammurabi's laws. So, he, I mean, this would take a long time to make. You'd have to mine it and shape it. And I think this particular uh, stone is not even from Mesopotamia. It's from the south someplace. A lot of that black stone came from the south. They would use it for statues and gods and special things like this. But this is how the laws were transported. And uh, these, um, I'll, I'll just, I just pick some sam samples of Hammurabi's laws because I want to illustrate this point. Just because God spoke certain laws to Moses to pass on to the people does not mean that we have to assume that God created new cultural constructs or ways of writing, or concepts of writing in order to do that. God often speaks to his people by accommodating the culture within which we live. And if you read Hammurabi's laws, which predate Israel's laws by, oh, you have uh, 1750 down to um, you know, the 1400s, at least 250, 300 years, the style through which the laws are written are almost identical to Exodus 21, Exodus 22, Exodus 23. Some of the laws I shared just word for word. So obviously Abraham was, Abraham through Moses and all their descendants were familiar with the culture within which we lived. And so when God delivered laws, like Ten Commandment laws or Exodus laws to his people, he did it using things they were familiar with. They, they, they would have been familiar with these kinds of laws. Um, so, as I mentioned, some of them have gone missing. I actually printed them off. But, uh, and this 
translation, there are 282 laws. I've just pulled out a few to give you some samplings. So law number three, if anyone brings an accusation of any crime before the elders and does not prove what he has charged, he shall, if it be a capital offense charge, be put to death. What does this law sound like in substance? Two or three witnesses. Like don't, don't make accusations without two or three witnesses. Tell the truth in legal proceedings. This is an ancient concept. Legal systems fall if lies are allowed. Law number six, if anyone steal the property of a temple or of the court, he shall be put to death. And also the one who receives the stolen thing from him shall be put to death. It's like when the DEA busts into a house in Detroit, if, if there's drugs there, you can't say, well, I don't know why they're here. You're in possession of them. You get charged. Law number 45, if a man rents his field for tillage for a fixed rental and receive the rent of his field, but bad weather come and destroy the harvest, the injury falls upon the tiller of the soil. In other words, don't blame your landlord because you didn't get corn that year. You rent it, you're responsible for it. You can, you can kind of see how some modern laws are based upon these, in, at least on a conceptual level. Here's some more. What's that? Uh, law number 105, if the agent is careless and does not take a receipt for the money which he gave to the merchant, so the agent would be the, 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 the vendor, right? Uh, yeah, I think so. He cannot consider the unreceipted money as his own. So you're walking around with a pile of cash. I mean, it wouldn't be cash like we have. And someone says, you stole that from me. Well, you have a receipt to prove it. If you don't have a receipt, you're kind of going to be considered like a criminal. Uh, 118, if he give a male or female slave away for forced labor and the merchant sublease him or sell them for money, no objection can be raised. This is kind of like sub-tenancy laws or what do they call them? Subletting your rental property, modern law. 128, if a man take a woman to wife but have no intercourse with her, this woman is no wife to him. Well, that's kind of biblical in the sense that if there's no intercourse, there's no valid marriage. Um, here's another one. If a man be guilty of incest with his daughter, he shall be driven from the place. Now, there's other laws that say if you're guilty of incest with your mother or, or your, your, your father's uh, wife, you're put to death. Uh, 185, if a man adopts adopt a child to, his, to name as son and rear him, his grown son cannot be demanded back again. So, you know, once adopted, always adopted. 196, if a man put out the eye of another man, he shall, uh, his eye shall be put out. That, that's like word for word out of it in, in Exodus. And there's several others like that. Hammurabi's laws, uh, you know, if we, if we went through them all and analyzed them against the backdrop of Scripture, you know, maybe there would be some details where like, ah, that's not really the scriptural angle on things. But for the most part, they actually sound a lot like the Bible. And I think this goes to show that the conscience of man, even apart from special revelation, knows what's right and knows what's wrong and is responsible for it. Because these people, with no relationship to Yahweh, no prophets, no apostles, no pastors, no popes, no clergymen, no bishops, no Bibles, 
are writing stuff down which very much reflect the moral character and attributes of the God we continue to worship. Surprise, surprise. Moses, sorry, go ahead. I was just referring to Abraham's self-consciousness and where Emmanuel guides him, his morals. Yep. It's interesting because we have had our Bible for so long and we believe the Bible is the word of God and rightly so that we often substitute our Bible for God, I think, and many people in our churches actually don't know how to have a relationship with God. They just know how to have a relationship with their Bible. But folks, there were people around for millennia who had relationship with God, the true and living God, like Abraham, before one book was written. Abraham had no book. He didn't even have a tract. (laughs) But he he obeyed God and followed God and had a relationship with God. So it's, it's a good reminder to us today that Uh, First and foremost, we have a relationship with God. We don't worship the Bible, even though it's through the Bible that God, you know, obviously reveals himself to us. Um, Anyway, these are some laws that I think do reflect the image of God in man and the desire for for justice. Again, not new. You can go back to 2100 BC and Ur-Namu of Ur was another king that developed similar laws. And again, these laws bear resemblance to the covenantal laws of the Torah. Well, uh, during this time, the Amorites, so Hammurabi would have been considered an Amorite king, they developed Babylon into a superpower. It would be a superpower at least for the next, you know, thousand plus years. Um, And whereas nomads had had destroyed much of Canaan and its cities in the last part of the third millennia. Uh, Through the influx of Amorites into Canaan, now some of these cities began to be uh, rebuilt. Now, the invasion of the northern Semitic people, the Mesopotamians, into Canaan didn't really change the ethnic stock of the Canaanites because they were all sort of related people. But what it did bring into Canaan is Mesopotamian culture and this uh, stronger emphasis on Semitic language and the Semitic alphabets, the early Semitic alphabets. So the over the course of time, the Egyptian scripts, which they would have been using, would have been sh- shooed out, and the mess and the uh, Semitic um, uh, alphabets would have come into play. The early at this time, the early what's known as the early Bronze Age was coming to an end. And for those of you that may not be familiar with that language, the early Bronze Age is the age where they were developing bronze in its early stages. Now, this is a lengthy period of time. The early Bronze Age in Mesopotamia is dated anywhere from 3000 BC to 1200 BC. And in, um, basically the way you think of it is Mesopotamia was about five to 600 years ahead of Canaan and Egypt in its development of bronze, and about five to six, maybe even 800 years ahead of Europeans in their development and use of bronze or metal. So they had it long before anyone else, and that's why you know they, they could have better instruments for battle and whatnot. Uh, therefore, when, when Abraham and later Isaac and Jacob, who still had a lot of connections to Ur, again, 
Isaac's wife comes from Ur of the Chaldeans. Jacob marries a relative. Uh, they would have likely for several generations brought the, a lot of the cultural influences or ideas from Mesopotamia into this small but growing tribe, which we call the Hebrews. And some of the things that I would like to suggest they brought is include language constructs, including not only the alphabet, but the ability to write and write in a certain way. Uh, their understanding of law code formulas, these kinds of formulas, they probably brought with them as part of their culture and their, their small tribe. Also, notions of kingship, or we could just say at this point, leadership which would later develop into kingship. Uh, I got this book from the um, Windsor Library, and it's entitled Mesopotamia, Assyrians, Sumerians, Babylonians. It's full of pretty pictures, little maps and stuff, and different sections. And one of the sections that I thought was kind of interesting that I wanted to sort of go through is over the course of time, the different concepts that the Mesopotamian kings had of kingship. And as I was reading through the list of the different concepts that the Mesopotamian kings had of kingship, it struck me that not all but many of these are reflected in the concept of kingship that Saul and David and Solomon and later Hebrew kings would have. And so I wanted to share some of these things, which I suspect obviously came to them by special revelation, but also as a result of their culture. So just a few notions of kingship and leadership. One of the things that most early kings in Mesopotamia thought of themselves as is somewhat of a priest. Now, this is very different than our modern notions of government. I mean, people would go berserk if Stephen Harper even implied that he was some sort of a priest over Canada. Uh, but many of the ancient kings thought of themselves as some sort of a representation a representative from the god or gods to their people. How do we know that? Well, I can take you back to this picture. He's the king. He's the king of a superpower at this point. He's imposing laws on his people, but he is a vassal of his god or gods. So in his head, conceptually, he sees his role as a king in some way as connected to his subservience to his god or pantheon of gods so the idea of king as priest of course comes up in the davidic kingship and it comes up even in our understanding of who christ is that christ is our high priest secondly the king as builder and closely connected to that the king as architect uh, some of the uh, pictures in this book picture a king with a shaved head. This is this would be like different period than uh, Hammurabi. A shaved head, clean-shaven face, so he's functioning as a priest. He's sitting on a throne, so he's the king. And on his lap is a flat board. And on this board are detailed drawings of the temples and the palaces that he was supposed to build as the priest king on behalf of the people. And then all written down his skirt, 
his robe are just it's just covered with with writing laws for how things are to be built and how things are to be designed so in a in a in a period of time when you know it wasn't the guy with the the most jets that wins it's the guy with the most fortified wall the the king viewed his role in part as he was like the chief architect and he's the chief builder well think about solomon one of the things Solomon was known for is his architectural prowess, his ability to build and build big. And he wasn't the first king that functioned as head builder, head architect. This is an ancient Mesopotamian concept. Now, depending on the generation and the king and the cultural background, as I mentioned, some of the kings did view themselves as God on earth. Those kings generally were didn't last very long. They were kind of resisted. This, obviously, this would be one of the the concepts of kingship that the Israelites did not take with them. No uh, king of Israel was ever considered God of his people. He was always a vassal to the true and living God Yahweh. Another concept that the kings had, and this is demonstrated also on this stele is that the king viewed himself as the enforcer of God's divine will. So he was, he was to be marked by righteousness and justice. Of course, sometimes it was self-serving. But he, he was to be characterized by righteousness and justice. And the good and righteous king was the king that brought uh, justice uh, to his people. Now, I'll just read a couple quotes. These are kind of humorous, but they do um, give us a little bit of a concept of um, how these kings viewed themselves. So this is a quote from the prologue of the, the first part of the Code of Hammurabi. He says, I, Hammurabi, the perfect king, thanks to the wisdom that A, that's his God, has poured into me, I wiped out the enemies both high and low and tamed war. So he clearly sees himself as like an ensign of God as one who is fulfilling the divine prerogative. Another uh, king, Gudea, said, refers to himself as, as, as a shepherd. He says, the shepherd builds a temple of precious metal. He builds a ninu of precious stones. He builds the temple with copper and tin. Notice he refers to himself as the shepherd. So this is another image, a conceptual image that the ancient Mesopotamian kings had of themselves, which would have you know, they're, they're in a, an agrarian culture. So they viewed themselves as shepherds. Well, this concept of the shepherd king, again, is picked up not only in the Davidic line, but also in Christ. So God, I don't know if I want to say God is borrowing concepts from the culture, but in some ways he is borrowing concepts of the culture in order to help his ancient and modern people to conceptually comprehend or understand the kingship of God or the kingship of a Davidic king who's ruling a theocracy under God. And then we have the king as a guarantor of justice. So this is reflected in these laws where the king puts just laws in place and he enforces them with, with death penalties or penalties of exile or whatnot. We also have a, a concept in Mesopotamia which really is not carried over into Israel, and that is the king as hero. Um, I mean, the king performed some heroic acts. He was welcomed into Jerusalem with a triumphal entry and palm branches were put, put down and people would blow horns and everything else. But the theocratic king, be it Saul or David or 
whoever it might be, was always supposed to attribute his heroic acts to God. And that's reflected in the Hebrew scriptures, where when there's a battle, it's always attributed, and they win, it's always attributed to God. And when they lose, it's always attributed to man's sinfulness or God's punishment. A um, couple, uh, one other concept that the Mesopotamian kings had, which the Israeli kings did not bring in, but which Yahweh God functions as, is the king ruling a universal empire. Best as we can tell, no ancient Israeli king ever had it in his mind to expand his empire into a universal empire. He was concerned about Canaan. And very seldom did the Jewish kings venture too far outside of Israel to do war. They basically defended their turf. But the concept of universal kingship is picked up in the Messianic line through Christ, where he is declared in Hebrews, for instance, as you know, the king of kings, the lord of lords, a universal king. Um, and then we have another concept, which is the king as a homage giver and receiver. So he both gives homage to the gods and receives homage. And many of the, the stone, um, uh, I don't know what you would call them, they're basically stone panels that decorate the walls of palaces and temples. And they're basically pictures of battles and of kings addressing gods and whatnot. Um, many of the kings are portrayed both as paying homage to a god, and you can always tell a god in their artwork because he's got the horned crown, the tiara, and as one who is um, receiving homage from some of the lesser gods. So he he's sort of under gods, but he's sort of over other gods. Now, uh, obviously this concept does not spill over into the Israeli understanding of kingship, but it would have been one that would have been familiar to the culture at the time. Uh, so we have Abraham and his descendants entering Canaan with influ being influenced by law code formulas, probably notions of kingship and leadership, notions of priesthood. They already had notions of priesthood before there was a Levitical priesthood. Because the Mesopotamians had priests. They had Ensi and various lesser priests. And they entered with uh, a knowledge of writing. Using the, the proto-Canaanite script. Probably the Phoenician script. So these are things that Israel had. Early Israel had. They benefited from their time in Mesopotamia. That they would bring in. That would eventually have a huge influence on their culture. And the way God expressed his laws to them, the way they would set up centuries later uh, kingship constructs, and the way they would um, uh, you know, benefit from the um, linguistic developments of Mesopotamia for writing what we now know as our Bible. Okay. Any questions or comments about what we've discussed tonight, about Mesopotamian culture? Susan? No, they do. Yeah. So they would have access to the temples, and he would sort of be like um, the king. The king was not, for the most part, the head of the. Once we move from city states, where the NC sort of is the king priest, to like Babylon, Hammurabi would represent the gods to his people, 
but he would think of God as higher than him and people through the priesthood and through the various temples and shrines could go and pray to or involve whatever cultic practices they had to that God. In what way? Yeah, he's like the religious head of state, right? But then they also have a president on top of that. And I think the Ayatollah is connected with several other clergymen. Could could be something like that. I'm not exactly sure about modern Iranian politics, but yeah. By the way, this is kind of like a all this area we're talking about is what we would now call Iran and Iraq. Any other questions? Yeah. Barbarians. <laughs> Barbarians running around with uh, horned hats, you know, eating meat raw, drinking drinking beer, spilling it down their beards. Um, feudal systems, tribes, um, mostly like uh, warring tribes in Europe at this time well behind Mesopotamian civilization in terms of metal, um, the use of gems. The, the um, Let me think here for a second. By the time of Hammurabi, they had already developed algebra in Mesopotamia. Uh, they had developed complex writing systems. Uh, they had developed complex irrigation systems. It was highly advanced, you know, what happens in civilization, especially at the time, is things take off technologically, but if one nation or people group is like the harbinger, the guardian of this technology, and they come and get wiped out, it might be a thousand years later before someone over here redevelops it. And they're credited with it, but it actually already developed in advance. So a lot of like, um, even like post-Christ Arab tribes take modern day credit for modern day math. But 2,000, 2,500 years before them, the Sumerians, the Sumerian Akkadian Amorite tribes had already developed things like, um, uh, you know, calendars and complex writing systems and mathematics and on and on and on and on. They're not living in little huts. I mean, th some of these palaces that the kings built had up to 300 rooms in them and, and measured several hundred meters square. So... And, and some of them, uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of a, a ziggurat. That's different than... No. Um, but a ziggurat is, is the... It almost looks like a tell, but it just keeps going up. These massive, ancient, mud-brick temples that were developed during this time. They're like multiple floors. So they obviously had people that were skilled at, uh, you know, what we would call structure. Now we would call structural engineering to figure out loads and, and, and how to put these things together. Um, not with China. China pretty much cut itself off from um, the rest of the world. and uh, But there, there was trade probably as far south as Africa, certainly into, into Egypt and south from there. Yep. Okay, well, it's 831, so you are kindly dismissed. <laughs>